The podcast that you're about to hear is a very provocative and interesting conversations from extremely conservative to liberal theologians, ideologists, politicians. We sat down during the International Pastors and Leadership Conference, and boy, did we have a riveting conversation. Join us now as the conversation is underway as we discuss the polarities between pulpits and politics. Hmm. For our history, our entire history as a country, faith and politics have been threaded together. You mentioned the role of faith in the civil rights movement, April. Um, But I think the second thing you mentioned about that is critically important. That It's a common misconception that people of faith were at the the forefront and every pastor or even every African-American pastor was at the forefront. I'm I'm a student of civil rights history, spent a lot of time with folks like Joe Lowry and C.T. Vivian, Mm -hmm. um, have immersed myself in the life of the greats like Fannie Lou Hamer and so forth. And when you look at what they wrote and what they say, they will tell you that it was the distinct minority of people of faith, including black folks, including pastors that were at the forefront of these prophetic movements. In fact, there were many more standing in the way. Uh, Fannie Lou Hamer said if she could just get pastors in Mississippi out of her way, she could do so much more. And so I think that's the, ch- the tension that we have to face now is that um, sometimes uh, the faith community can be at the forefront of movements for change, but sometimes they can be co-opted by the same systems that are blocking change anyway. And we've got to figure out what side we're going to be on. Bishop Jackson, where is the church when it comes to this moment in time when we're seeing this budget acts, the proposal mm-hmm. for major budget cuts when it swings towards the least of these? I want to go back to something that Joshua said. It does apply. I believe there are levels of prophetic influence the church can have in a nation. What he has been doing for many years is being like a prophet. As David had two prophets he really listened to, perennially to the man making the most major impact uh, in our nation. So I think we're in Joel chapter three in the Old Testament. Joel chapter three is a passage in which God calls out the men of war and there's conflict, but the conflict is God ordained. And I believe that what we're starting to see are a lot of inequities in the system. It's not just the left or the right, it's both and. And I think God in his mercy is exposing things that we have to deal with. And I think all of us who are aware if we don't deal with race problems in America, something's going to burn up. If we don't, you know. something's going to burn it, up. <laughs> yeah, and if you don't deal with a community I was raised in, Cincinnati, Ohio, a little place called Avondale, mm-hmm. you know, that place is decimated with poverty. Mm-hmm. And if we don't deal with how we treat poverty or people as low in the spectrum, given the fact we're the richest nation in the world, I believe we're going to have to answer to God. So I believe the church has an opportunity, but I'm concerned that she's still in this place, as he mentioned before so eloquently, that we're reticent and we're not standing up. Bishop Jackson, what you're talking about is activism. And I talked to uh, Harry Belafonte, iconic activist, entertainer, um, recently. And he said, you know, in his walk, when he was walking with Dr. King and Paul Robeson, W.E.B. Du Bois departed, gave him this word, saying that, you know, true liberation comes when there's great pain. And when there's great pain, there's radical activism that effectuates change. Father Flay, you are very active, to say the least. 
Some are saying that there is a renewed spirit of activism. I'm going back to this Joel mm -hmm. commentary, scripture. Talk to me about modern day and yesterday and how do they meet in the church for the ills that are still plaguing this society that's been going on for generation, generation, hundreds of years. How do you change that dynamic in a time such as this? Well, I think this is an opportunity for the church that we better not miss. Um, we have looked for government, and particularly Democrats and Republicans, to shape us and shape our character, our culture, our morality, and they both failed because they're not supposed to be shaping morality. The church is supposed to be shaping morality. And I believe that the church has to pull up its chair at the table of politics, uninvited or invited, and be the conscience, and be the conscience and raise, but, but, but the church has to remember when they pull up the chair, April, who they're there to represent. They are not there to wrap their arms around personalities. They are not there to sit and theologize Pharaoh. Their job is to say, let my people go and their job, I believe, has to be not only to be the conscience and the moral compass, but I think one thing we failed in, everybody, and you're from Washington, everybody has a lobbyist in Washington but the poor. Mm. The church is supposed to be the lobbyist of the poor. And if the church is not the lobbyist of the poor and the disenfranchised, then we have failed. Okay, I receive what you say, but I remember a time when presidents would come to churches to... Mm -hmm. To, to say, vote for me or vote for this candidate. And there was a challenge to those churches about loss of their tax status because of getting involved. How do you do it? I'm asking all of you, how do you do it? How do you fight for the least of these and be the church, keep your status, but yet make sure your people are taken care of? You know, let me put it this way. John the Baptist is getting ready to die. He's the first one to recognize Jesus. Now all of a sudden he's getting ready to die. He says, go see if you're the one. <laughs> I understand that. When you're getting ready to die, it's another whole thing on the line. Jesus doesn't say to them, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican, I came out of the line of Judah, I'm from the house of David, I'm not Catholic, I'm not Protestant. He says, just go back and tell them, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, tell them what I did. And I think that is what the church has to do today we have to push and push and push. We have to have something to, have to go back and tell that we did. We ought to be changing. We ought to be fighting every politician until the poor to the playing field is equal and that justice reigns down. If we don't do that, then what are we there for? Josh? I, I think Father Flager is, is exactly right. And the other thing I would add is when a politician calls and says, can I come and speak to the congregation from the pulpit? Say no, but you can come to my food pantry and serve people there. Right. You can come to my ex-offender ministry and serve and, and hear from formerly incarcerated persons. You can come to my ministry for women who have experienced domestic violence and hear their stories. We need to not accept politicians in our spaces without receiving concrete commitments from them to serve our people. Right, right. There's, there's been too much of this, we're gonna wrap our arms around folks without understanding what they're gonna do with that next. And we've gotta be stewards of our platforms on behalf of those most in need. Yeah. Well, one of my challenges is, I love the scriptures he quoted, but we need real spiritual power. Yeah. It seems like to me, as far as I've been engaged in the whole political world, there's a group of people who never pray 
but they got all kinds of opinions and they're activists. Then there are a bunch of people who pray, but they never go anywhere and engage people. So faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Right. So to his point, yeah, they, they've got to come together. And we need churches to come together regionally if we're going to change, let's say, Baltimore near where I live. And so just to summarize where I am, I think we've got to deal with, if you deal with racism, there's a heart issue that has to be ministered to spiritually, right? Yeah. But we know there are structural issues that are keeping people excluded, mm-hmm. but you can't deal with one without the other. And I seem to see us in this predicament. I'm agreeing with Bishop Jackson here, and I'm gonna take even a slightly, um, maybe different approach on it. And that is going back to my original statement when I said that I believe the church is the only legal entity by God authorized to bring forth change. Responsibility comes to us. So if there is a poor person, we are responsible within our own churches, within our community, within our local community to take care. I'm not looking to Washington, D.C. to take care of Apopka, Florida. I am looking to New Destiny Christian Center to be responsible. Therefore, we have to involve ourselves in government, but we can't just say, we're going to go up and fight and fight and fight. I'm responsible for the person that's homeless and hungry and everything else. If you see a person that is hungry, it's my responsibility, if I have power to do good, to do it. I believe you're right, and to a certain extent. I've seen for the last 20 years, 150 feet from the Oval Office, how presidents legislate, how they create change, effectuate change. But, well, they not legislate, but the executive, use the executive office for good in their own way. <laughs> um, some of them tried, some of them did, some of them are still on a learning curve, and that's the truth. But when you have something at the top, it trickles down to the locales. It comes from the top and it trickles down to the locales. And when it comes to the locales, you do take in the hurt. But at the same time, these presidents listen to someone. They are listening to people. They have people around them who influence. How many on this stage has the ear or have had the ear of a president or presidents? Raise your hand, Father Mike. (laughs) Okay. I know that. <laughs> All right. I'm just raising my hand to use an example for them. I have not had the ear of presidents to give information, but I'm going to ask each and every one of you, what do you talk to the president about when you call them or when they call you? I remember being in several meetings and recent meetings with these powerful people, but it seems to me that unlike Joshua Dubois, I've been asked to give input on specific issues like marriage, Uh, like family, Mm -hmm. like most recently, religious liberty, Supreme Court justice choices. Mm -hmm. And that's one level of influence in policy areas. I think they can take it or leave it, what you have to say. My, My prayer, though, is that I would be someone who would have greater spiritual influence in that with a statement can come conviction from God versus... I'll give you an example. A president's advisor years ago on a conference call and these guys had just gotten elected and the church had helped them get elected. And he says, well, we understand that you're concerned about all these issues, but we've got to handle the economy. We've got to handle this. And it was almost like 
I'm listening to you because you represent a constituency, but I don't have to do anything with what you say. You're not speaking to me as a prophetic voice of conscience. You're just another one of the voters. So that tension is But aren't you representing a large portion of this country or part of a group, you're a leader in a group that has the ear of that community to give back, to relate back to the president, along with spirituality? Yes, we are. And I think we need to take that very, very seriously. But it's hard to discern in real time whether these guys, forgive me if I'm sounding bad about the presidential leaders, it's hard to discern whether they're gaming you, if I can use that phrase, and they're doing their political thing by kissing babies and shaking hands. (laughs) The question is, how do we engage with presidents? What what do you you say? Well, the the first thing I often say is actually a question, and that's how can I pray for you? And, you know, these folks are who walk around in the case of President Obama with quite literally the weight of the world on their shoulders. And sometimes you want to be a person that helps them share that burden a little bit and carry it a little bit for them. Um, there have been so many conversations and things that we've shared. Um, my role was often walking with him through moments of national challenge and tragedy. The president called on me to travel with him, for example, to Sandy Hook after the, um, the massacre of children at Newtown. And because he knew that when something is that terrible, that it's not just a policy problem or just related to the facts on the ground, but there's a spiritual problem there as well. And he asked me to be with him as he was comforting those families there. And so that's one of the roles. But he has always had sort of a knee-jerk focus on who's being left out. So he didn't need to be reminded of that. You know, who is not at the table? Who are the vulnerable folks that we need to speak for? And so we were generally on the same page about those types of questions. This president, number 44, had a major decision to make that challenged his legal prowess and his faith. Did you step in on that issue when it came to same-sex marriage? We had conversations about it. And one of the things that was interesting to me about President Obama was there were the policy implications, but a lot of it for him was personal. He said that he was no longer willing to engage with Americans who didn't have, you know, share his sexuality that were in the LGBT community and feel like he was denying them something that he had access to. He understood, though, that there would be a ton of people who would disagree with him on that. And he thought that everybody um, had a space at the table. But, uh, but yes, we certainly had conversations about that as well. Yeah, that's still a big issue today with this president who changed his stance um, on the bathroom issue. Have you talked to this president? You've known this president for over 15 years. I have, April. And Um, I saw you praying with this president um, when he was candidate Trump. mm -hmm. I mean, fervent prayer. What do you talk to him about? Well, you just named it. I've known him for over 15 years, so I didn't come into this as an activist, as a politician, as a pastor, a person who cares about souls. And so 15 years ago... Uh, President Trump was watching a television program on value vision. 
called and began to discuss value vision. And we talked about the sermon and how it ministered to him. And we began to dialogue about God and about church and about ministry, etc. I was doing a Bible study for the Yankees at the time. That's I always say that's when they were winning. <laughs> but um, no, no one laughed because they're Mets fans or something. So, um, but they were winning at that time. And so he said, "Are you ever in New York?" And it was. It's like all of us as believers. I believe that I have these interactions every single day with people, and that leads into engagement and sometimes connection, and then sometimes even covenant. And so that interaction led to another thing, and and over 15 years, relationship developed. And for me, and I don't minimize at all because he was confirmed Presbyterian, grew up in Norman Vincent Pills Church. He's a strong Christian family with a strong Christian praying mother. But my assignment, what I felt from God, I'm not saying on his, I can't speak on his behalf, was show him who I am simply to me meant live as a Christian before him. So I started praying. Um, I'm in, I had a church in New York at the time, and I would spend many, many hours, not just with him, his staff, his family, his friends, doing Bible study, and it just naturally led over. So I can say to this, like Joshua, my greatest assignment when I go in is not to say, well, let's talk about this policy or let's do this. The first thing I always do is what can I pray with you about. Does he ever ask you? For prayer? No, no, no. Does he ever ask you after the prayer? <laughs> about about, about some... moral values on certain issues. Uh, we discuss different things. We do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I've been asked on uh, from moral values to not from just himself, but different principles or what is this? Principles and... meaning people within the White House, his Absolutely. high-ranking um, high staff members. Absolutely. Okay. So, um, and I, I think that is because the, the voice has become trusted, but I'm not asked from a policy position or a political, I'm asked from a spiritual position. Uh, Father Flake, I'm, oh, I'm, re- I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think when we have that access to mm-hmm. talk to the most powerful person in this country in the world, we got to use it very strongly and aggressively. And I think, I think um, number one, from the gospel that we've get, given our lives to, and number two, from the people who don't have access and whose words and voices are not being heard. So, and I say two things. When I met in the Oval Office with President Clinton during the whole time of the drugs and the three strikes route, and I was voicing my absolute anger that we are gonna lock up young African-American and Hispanic children in this country, and I was absolutely against it. Obviously, my voice was not heard. When uh, I had a conversation in passing with President Bush, I explained to him how outraged I was with the Iraq war. I met in the Oval Office in April with President Obama, and I said to him then, I said, if there's one thing I can say to you, Chicago is a poster boy for violence. It is not. We have a police issue with lack of respect and and the relationship that's been broken, but this is not a police issue. This is an abandonment and neglect of people on the south and the west sides of Chicago. We need jobs. We need homes. We need opportunities for those incarcerated. We need housing. Help us. I want to add something here, if I can, Father, that is important, because for myself, 
say I'm a professional construction worker for Jesus. And what I mean by that is one of the greatest things I've done is bridge strong voices. Bishop Harry Jackson can attest to this, etc. I've put probably about 150 clergy in front of uh, our President Trump and continue to go on and speak to those issues. So the one thing that has been given is that access if there is something that is needed. We had an organization that had a 24-hour deadline. We could get it before the president. What the administration does, they do with it. But we have those things that are of vital importance, that are heard, that are listened to, have the right listening sessions, and do what needs to be taken care of. I'm going to take an unscientific poll right here. And I want all of you to participate. I'm asking you right now, do you believe that the church should be one of the standard bearers when it comes to issues in the black community, the underserved community, show of hands, who believes it should be? Mm, interesting. A show of hands of those who do not believe there should be a separation between church and state. All right, I think we have a pretty, pretty did anyone raise their hand? You said yes? I, I hear a very faint yes. Okay, oh, it's over there. Over there, there's one over there. Okay. Thank you. We, we have to look. Oh, I see you, sir. Thank you so much. I see, and, and gentlemen, I see the gentleman who's trying to help out, point him out. Thank you. We see you. We see, and there's a light on you now. We're all family here, okay? We're all family who's having a civil discussion dealing with heart issues and remedies to fix the problems. And I'm going to say this. I've written two books because I've been near <laughs> some of the highest power in the world, 150 feet from the Oval Office. You cannot sit there and see and hear what you hear and see what you see and not write about it. But one thing I found out is that when we deal with the issue of race, the other, but let's talk about race first. The African-American community in 2017 still has the highest numbers of negatives in almost every category. That's not yeah. myth, it's not conjecture, it's real. It's real. Yeah. What do you do about it? I'll jump up out there on this one. Um, the most important thing and the first thing we need to do is understand our history and understand at a base level that there is nothing wrong with us. We carry around the sense that, you know, if we just did this or that, we just pulled our pants up or for fathers that were active, without going back to the fact that we had amazing communities and brilliant infrastructure and, and strong families, and then we're brought here in chains in 1619. We're held for about 250 years, finally liberated, but it didn't stop there. We moved into a post-reconstruction period where we were lynched by, by uh, 4,000 people between the 1880s and 1940s. We had a brief period of civil rights where we finally got some legal uh, protections, and then folks said, well, we're done. Everything's fixed after that. We've had basically 350 years of really, really tough stuff and only 50 where we're beginning to get our feet underneath us. And so, of course, we're facing some challenges. That history matters. Now, it's not an excuse. It's not a, it's not a justification. But we have to get to the bottom of white supremacy in this country first before we start looking at black folks like we have something 
wrong with us. And so what I would say when it comes to issues of race in our country is we need other Americans, even outside of the African-American community, to understand that this is our original sin and we're yeah. still sinning and we need to confront this head on. That's what I would say is we've got to know our history. Yeah. But then when you talk about race, there's also this issue of the other. Our Muslim brothers and sisters are having major issues right now when it comes to the issue of traveling, when it comes to being profiled. We're being profiled, they're being profiled. What happens now? How do we as a people of faith change the dynamic in the Oval Office, in Cap or Capitol Hill? How do we as people of faith, even though we may not be Muslim, but we are still seeing our brothers and sisters hurt. Many of us have cousins who are Muslim. Many of us have family and friends who are Muslim or other faiths. What, what do you do? How do you change this dynamic? Because there is a clear divide when it comes to us versus them in this country right now. What do you do? You got uh, that? I'll tell you, what, I'll tell you what, April, what I think is that the danger. I mean. No, the danger, April. All right, all right everybody, everybody. <laughs> I mean, these are real issues, and very this is real. very real issues. Yeah. These are issues that affect all of us. When we walk out of here, we still have to go home. We pray. We pray for change. But when we go home, we have to deal with this. So we need to be respectful and understand this is a real dialogue, and right. we're getting some major meat and news and, out of this. And I think, April, that one of the things we have to be careful of, because there is so much pain and there is so much division right now, that we develop silos. So there's the brown silo, there's the black silo, there's the Muslim silo. We have to understand when our goal is truth and our goal is freedom of all people, we gotta unite. The, we cannot allow our pain or our hurt to divide it. This is the time for the black and the brown and the poor and the poor white and the, the Muslim brother. Christians gotta stop saying, well, that's a Muslim problem. This is our problem. This is a human problem. And we got to unite and fight together for justice and truth. That's why the work that Bishop Jackson is doing is so important. This reconciled church movement, yeah. Bishop, yeah. talk a little bit about that, because you're bringing people across the aisle together on these issues in a way that they haven't been Josh, thank done you before. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I really believe that Jesus said in the last days that ethnos would rise up against ethnos. In other words, we're hardwired in our genetics and our attitude for us to hate each other at a tribal level, unless you're in Christ, unless you are born again. So we need to get the born again people starting there together on a common platform of some agenda items. We need white leaders in our nation to stand up and speak out. You wrote a bit about this, uh, about the shootings. In America, we need to stand, as you said, as Christians together. Without that unity, we're beating the air. We're not going to get anything done at all. And Bishop, you're right, because it took white people to join in after the deaths when they were going to trying to get voting rights exactly. for white people to right. come in and join in and then die for people to say this is a just cause. So the history proves out what you're saying. But go ahead. I'm sorry. It really does. Let me tell you a little history lesson of sorts. At uh, the end of our American Revolution, many people don't realize that Bishop Francis Asbury had a African-American they called Black Harry who traveled with him. He was a former slave who was illiterate. He could not even read. But he had the ability to memorize large passages of scripture. 
So Black Harry was sent out to kind of warm up the crowd um, to, uh, before this guy, Bishop Asbury, spoke. Many people don't realize that he became such a moving speaker that in the 1700s, the state of Indiana, people began to call themselves Hoosiers mm. because of Black Harry Hoosier, an anointed Black preacher who crossed the color barrier. I'm here to tell you that there is something that we can do only in Jesus yes. that can be a foundation for us advancing, as he said, an agenda. But far too often, we let the fact that he may be a Democrat and I may be a Republican keep us from working together. And we are divided along earthly lines instead of saying, we're gonna do something about the problems in Dallas or Baltimore now, and we're gonna do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. And, and I'm gonna add one thing because we referencing, we're saying these problems and they, and, and I believe we have to get very specific because we're talking about specifically right now um, race problems, but then what problem within this race problem? Because we, there are many different, and you can't address Jobs, it. Absolutely, housing, absolutely. Health, but that's what I'm schools. saying. We have to be criminal justice. Yeah, uh, most go. definitely. Criminal justice. Yes. And then we have to look at abortion rate. We have to look at every single thing individually. We can't just lump it together and say these problems. Let's talk about the moral issue then. Okay. You brought up the moral issue. Sure. All right, there's gonna be, this president wants to talk about issues of, uh, he's looking at issues of Roe v. Wade right now. There are other issues, uh, same-sex uh, issues, um, criminal justice, as we said, he's, uh, the Justice Department. Mm -hmm. Jeff Sessions is looking at reviewing the dissent decrees in cities like Baltimore, right. um, Ferguson, reviewing these. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about these moral issues. Let's start, let's start with Roe v. Wade since you brought it up. That is gonna come up. How does the church, Leading the forefront with it. That's a very controversial issue. And let's start, first of all, Roe v. Wade was really put in place to define a timeline of when a woman can or cannot have an abortion. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that, the moral issue of Roe v. Wade. I'd love to. And I actually brought a few notes there. I'm sure you do. <laughs> with it. But let's talk about it specifically as in the context of what we were dealing with. So we're dealing with in race. And um, one of the things, and I, I might be off by 20, but about in 2012, there were 6,100, and it was either 54 or 74, it's in my notes, more um, abortions among the black community than there were live births. That's a really staggering statistic. Okay, where's your stat from? Okay, got them all over. I, where, I did, where is it from? I, I just wanna make sure. Okay, and we'll, go, we'll fact check, okay? <laughs> We'll fact check. <laughs> Bishop Jakes, Bishop Jakes, what do you think about that? <laughs> no, I mean, well, I, and no, I'm gonna- Pastor make, White, I can't do alternative facts now. <laughs> I'm gonna, no, 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 no. <laughs> but see, when my statistics aren't, when the statistics aren't liked, when we've got to deal with real issues, we want to just go on. No, 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 but we but I, want, I want to know where your facts are, because I mean, I if we give out facts, we need to know where they are. She's looking for the facts on that. I think that leads to a, a vital question. Yeah. While I certainly think that the right to life, that I am very, very much focused on pro-life, and I'm a little uncomfortable with anything other than that. Uh, my big concern when we have that narrative is you cannot say to people, 
that you must be morally responsible and birth a child who are below the poverty level exactly. and then not feed the child yeah. you made me birth. Exactly. And Bishop is on something really important exactly. there. Under President Obama, abortion rates were at their lowest in almost 30 years. Because when you support poor women, when you give people opportunities and make sure that they are surrounded by evidence-based sex education and they have opportunities to go to school, to continue their education, guess what? Teenage pregnancy rates go down and abortion rates go down. When you restrict access to health care, to Medicaid, to college right. education, guess what? Abortion rates go up. And it's fascinating. Look, this is not me. This is the Department of Health and Human Services. Teen pregnancy rates have plummeted over the last eight years because we're trying to support women and girls more. And when you don't do that, when you do like what they announced today, like a proposal to cut health care coverage for people that have pre-existing conditions, you know what that's going to do? It's going to cause people um, to feel closed in. It's going to cause the poor to be in a much more vulnerable place and abortion rates will go up. That's the concern right. that I have. Yeah. yeah, I just want to touch on something the Bishop said because I think it's so important. I am pro-life and I am against abortion. But I want to be very clear. I think we have narrowed what we define as abortion. We define abortion as something that happens in a womb in a clinic. If we believe that every single one of us as children of God have a destiny, a purpose, and a plan ordained by God, then... When a child is not allowed to reach his or her destiny by education, by poverty, by racism, that's abortion. That is abortion. There are all forms of abortion. That's right. Wow. <laughs> Is it the problem that the church finds is that we find ourselves having to hook our wagon to one political side or the other when the truth right. of the matter is we don't totally agree with either side about everything. Isn't that the truth? You know? That's why I thought this conversation would be important to have because I think one of the things that we end up with debris and contamination is when we attach our identity to either entity, and I yeah. like this is God's choice right. for the body of Christ. We have really become prostitutes yes. to politics. Go ahead, Bishop. You, you understand ahead, what Bishop. I'm saying? I really wish the church would find its own voice and not always have to speak through the microphone of either party because no matter who's been in the White House in my lifetime, I have always disagreed with both of them about something. So when we get ready to vote, we have to pick which poison we want to drink because we are not willing to stand autonomous from either side and say we are not Democrat or Republican. We are for Jesus and the kingdom of God. Go, and these, this is our agenda rather than having to sign a commitment to pledge to somebody's agenda that you always end up having to cover for at some point in the administration regardless of which way we go. Yeah. On both sides of the aisle, I always find myself with egg on my face about something. <laughs> because politics often goes down a road 
that cannot be endorsed by scripture. Exactly, exactly. The reason I thought this was a very provocative conversation to have is you vote for who you vote for and you, you always end up to some degree uncomfortable with the choices that they make. But when we get so committed to a candidate that we say this is God's choice, when they move in an ungodly way, we lose all credibility as Christians. And I think there are times that rather than supporting them, that we should demand that they support us. How do we then recapture our identity when there are so many shrewd ways that politics uses mm-hmm. to, to borrow our voice and this past election in a way like no other? I found the body of Christ so divided, mm. right. so yeah. divided, hatefully divided. Yeah, right. Right. All you got to do is go back on any of our Twitter feeds. That's right. No matter which side you were on, we were cursed. Right. We were damned. Right. We were satanic. We were antichrist. No matter which side you take, the church chooses a side that compromises at some point the tenets of our faith. And I thought we ought to have this conversation away from all of that and create an atmosphere whereby we can have substantive dialogue. It's cost us so much. Yes. Because before it's all over, at some point, your integrity gets compromised. When you end up selling out, it's almost like jailhouse salvation for some of them. When you only get converted because you're running. It creates a dynamic that no matter what you do, you end up uncomfortable. And psychology teaches that the best way to determine what a person is going to do is by what they have Have done. done, So when you look at the trajectory of someone's past, when you don't have credibility as a Christian, and then suddenly assume it like an inmate does in a jail cell, and we line up with that, I'm wondering if one of the reasons that we're seeing the deterioration of millennials supporting the church is because we have lost credibility by the bedfellows we have slept with in order to get recognized in a White House environment. I'm just asking. I don't know. It's just a question. Go ahead, Bishop. Right on target. Okay, how do you follow up on Bishop T.D. Jakes who just laid it all down, okay? Amen. Amen. He summed up, at least where I was trying to go on Bishop. So thank you. And that that is our identity is found in Christ as a Christian. I believe that we teach kingdom. I believe in the simplest thing, Jesus kind of went like this. He said, render unto Caesar what is due to Caesar and unto God what is due to God. And so am I a Christian and do I believe that the word is the infallible word of God? And then as that, 
what influence, because you were talking morality, what influence do I have in the community to influence with that? And it goes back to, it's not, am I this, am I that? Am I a child of God? And if so, line up with the word of God and my influence, I am the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And whether that is, Joshua didn't know that I did. He did a documentary and didn't include me. He didn't know that I saw it won 50,000 people to the Lord and right after the LA riots and was in Watts, Nickerson Gardens, Wyverly, uh, going in, seeing all the miracles of God, or whether it's in Watts, whether it's in Apopka, or whether it's in the White House. My light is my light, and that is the light of God that shines from the inside, and you walk that out as a believer. Bishop is, is saying something really important there, and as someone who worked in the White House, worked for uh, President Obama and knew him for years before that, the most effective religious voices were not those who endorsed him full out and said that I'm going to be with you no matter what. There were the ones who supported him when they felt that he was supporting the community, but challenged him when he wasn't. And that is the prophetic voice of the church. That's what Dr. King would do. When he walked into the Oval Office, he didn't just say, I'm with you. I'm going to lay hands on you and we're going to leave it at that. And I'm going to be with you no matter what. He said, what are you doing to advance voting rights? What are you doing to advance civil rights? We can't have these folks seek an endorsement and then we wrap our arms around them without then asking, what are you doing for my people? Those are the people that President Obama respected, not the ones who just gave an endorsement, but the ones who consistently held his feet to the fire. People like Bishop Jakes, like Father Mike and others who would have these conversations and would support him when, when it was right. But when they saw something that they didn't like, they would tell him about that as well. And, and that was important. Yeah. The, the squeaky wheel in Washington gets the oil. And the Bible also says, walk boldly. Yeah. Doesn't it say that it says walk boldly? I believe we need this unity and we also need some sense of priority. We start, uh, let's just use a very practical thing that you and I have talked a lot about, criminal justice reform. You've got something like that, that people on both sides of the aisle say that they're open to making a change. Now, they are not going to make a change unless a group of people with a constituency put pressure on them in one direction. That can be a prophetic act. Us organizing around one thing, not caring about all the other things we don't agree on, all the little doctrinal things in the way we do church that we may not like somebody else does church. So we can walk in the territory that Bishop Jakes talked about if we could at least say something like this criminal justice reform, education, the reading level, mathematic level of kids, and jobs have got to be a priority in this season. We have got enough agreement around there if we could somehow come together. The Affordable Care Act, it affects all of us. Pre-existing conditions, that's on the table right now to be defunded possibly and changed. I mean, that affects the vast majority. That was really, um, they didn't say this, but a a large portion of it was focused on the black community to help with wellness. And those of us who have pre-existing conditions, now what's on the table, you're going to have to pay higher rates now versus being able to not be discriminated against because you have a pre-existing condition. And people are not talking about that in this community. Faith without works is dead, but I mean, it's one thing to read the Bible, but you also got to read the newspaper. Well, but that's, I agree. I'm just saying. (laughs) But that's already a politically polarized area. I'm just saying, 
isn't there something that we can find common ground on without having to go through all kinds of debates and hoops? And it may only be one or two things, but I think we can make positive action. And this criminal justice issue is an essential one. And I, I, we need to hear from Father Michael that you, you've been living that, you know, at St. Sabina in terms of um, addressing that on the ground. But even on that one, and Bishop Jackson, a conservative, has been using his platform on this. We need folks to look at this Department of Justice right now because we are in the middle of some troubling shifts where all those depart- police departments, local departments that were being monitored before, yeah. they're about to remove those consent decrees under this new attorney general. All of the progress, this very slow and careful and not nearly enough progress we're starting to make on investing in youth violence and um, ex-offender reentry and so forth, that's all coming under assault right now. So everyone who, even if you supported this current president, don't go away from that now. We need you to use that platform to go in and say that, you know, criminal justice matters and the Department of Justice matters. And Bishop Jackson's doing this, but we need others around the country to leverage their platforms to advocate and look at that Department of Justice. We're going to go to Father Flager for one second, but I'm going to piggyback off of something you said. There's also a mother that is crying out to the Justice Department continually who did, who's still seeking justice for what happened to her son in New York, who cried out 11 times, I can't breathe. She is calling on the Justice Department, Gwen Carr, the mother of Eric Garner has tried to get justice for her son. There's still no accountability for the death of Eric Garner. Gwen Carr, the mother, is still looking for justice now from Jeff Sessions. You know, I want to jump in for a minute because we're we're all basically saying the right things for the most part, (laughs) but we're, we're not always using our voice regardless to who is in the White House to hold them accountable to those one or two things that we agree on. I think there's more to unite us than there is to divide us. I agree. Absolutely. But somehow it ends up, by the time you get to the ballot box, we split right down the lines of conservatives, evangelicals, going always Republican, and then liberals and African-American churches, for the most part, going Democrat. Right. And I think we have lost ourselves. Yeah. We are are not being heard or respected because once they get the photo op, (laughs) once they get the photo op, (laughs) they're not listening at what you have to say. I've been with both sides. I've been with both sides. I have been involved with Republicans. I've been with Democrats for the most part. They don't really take us seriously because our vote is so predictable. Your conversation may be challenging, but if your vote is predictable, it doesn't matter what you say. And I am concerned because I pastor both Republicans and Democrats and independents. And I think it is interesting as I look at the stage how it happened to end up being divided. You've got two African-Americans on one side, two Caucasians on the other side, and the two African-Americans are on different political perspectives, and the two Caucasians are different perspectives. It certainly proves that we're not monolithic. But yet, when you look at the stats and you look at the voting trends and you look at once the politicians get into office, 
How do we get that voice that Bishop Jackson is talking about to resonate in a way that all they do is get the photo op, they don't get the backroom conversation, and we don't go out and speak against the person we took the picture with ever about anything. Wow. How do we get that back? Thanks for listening to part one of the episode. Come back next week to check out part two.